0: Welcome to Highland Baptist Church, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. We are so happy you chose to join us. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit highlawnbaptistchurch.org for more information. But for now, grab your Bibles, go all the way to the back, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, good evening. <laughs> we are in session nine of our look at the seven churches in Revelation, and we're looking at the seventh listed by Christ, the church of Laodicea. And this is interesting from the point of view of where we are today in the history of the churches we're going to get into in just a little bit. Because again, one of the levels of application that we can take from these letters is that these are local churches with local church problems, yes, but the order in which they are presented isn't just geographic. Because as we look at the, the map, we see that there are alternate routes that would make a lot more sense than the pattern that they're presented here. What they do, however, is give us, uh, and this is conjecturable if you don't believe it. I'm not going to argue with you about the fact, but I just want you to be aware of it. The order that they are presented in give us a glimpse of the church, the capital C church, Christianity across the world, it's history. But before we go any further, let's open up with a word of prayer if we'll bow our hearts together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together and to, um, Lord, to learn more about your word, to gather your wisdom, to seek your guidance and instruction. Compel us to the work ahead so that we might truly, uh, Lord, when we stand at your throne and when we present our sacrifices of praise to you when they enter into the fire Lord may they be refined may they show you value and worth and may everything that we do be in accordance with your will for you are the Lord of this church so please inspire us to continue on open our hearts and our minds to your word and teach us now so that we may avoid the pitfalls of the past and embrace the wisdom that will grant us a brighter future in you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So taking a look, again, we are in what I would consider the most practical section of the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2 and 3, which talks about that which is, what is going on in the present of John's circumstances, the seven churches. Um, this next session, session 10, what we'll do when we come in here is we'll, we'll put together a, a synopsis of these seven churches, what they can teach us, and what uh, Jesus himself has also taught about this magic, uh, this, excuse me, not magical, the mystical organization, the strange organism, life form that is the church, the gathering of the called out ones. But for now, let's take a look at this one in particular. Again, we want to take a look at the name of the church, the title that Christ chooses for himself, which has meaning to the people that he's talking to, the commendation, what the churches are doing right, the concern, this is a report card, what they're doing wrong, you need to adjust, and the instructions that he grants them to make those adjustments, as well as a promise he offers everyone who is an overcomer of these situations. We'll talk a little bit about that more in detail later on. But one of the things that I'd also encourage you to do for those of you at home to join with us if there is something in your translation that you find markedly different from what we use here, please let us know in the live comments. We also encourage you to help us spread the Word of God uh, to use these sessions as a commentary to help enrich people, enrich believers who are studying the Word of God with us. So please hit the like button, share this, and just let us know what you think of them, positive or negative, what will help us build this ministry. And in so doing, that helps let Facebook and YouTube know that this church is alive and that what we do has value. So help us spread the Word of God together. Let's take a look at the concerns for the previous churches in brief. Really quickly, Ephesus, the first and probably the missionary hub that led to the creation of the rest of these churches, uh, was called to task for being all programs in doctrine and no personal devotion. So busy doing the work of the kingdom that they had no time for the king. So busy, as, as the trap is for so many of us in today's time, we're so many working, we're so busy working for our families that we have no time to spend with our families. Smyrna um, was the church under persecution, and Jesus basically tells them that he will not put any more burdens upon them but to simply hold fast to the to the faith. Pergamum, the church of the mixed marriage, the church must have different values than the fallen culture surrounding it. The bride of Christ cannot be married to the world at the same time that is married to Jesus. The bride of Christ, being the church, capital C Church, is charged to present itself as blameless before he who is the bridegroom, which is Christ himself. Thyatira, discipleship requires discipline. Ferret out wrong teaching. Ferret out those people within the church who would cause trouble, who stirs the pot, who brings persecution from within the church. Sardis is a church that was all appearances and no substance, yet there was still a remnant in there that were faithful. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love where Christ commends them to keep on mission. I have opened doors in front of you that no man can Shut. Here's the doorway to your ministry. Here's the doorway to escape that which will deter you. But in all things, love. And we found out in in taking a look at the history of Philadelphia that the Jewish population there that were bringing persecution on this early church, later on because they refused to hate their enemies but chose to love their enemies, that Jewish population became part of the church of Philadelphia. So even when you're in times of persecution and trouble do not devolve to showing hatred for hatred but in all things show love. Now we come to Laodicea. This is part of the ruin of the city of Laodicea. In fact in its area in the area of Laodicea um, the city's the ruins of Laodicea um, are massive. The bulk of the, the city itself, the ancient city, is still there for us to examine. There's amphitheaters, there are temples, uh, there are banking areas, libraries, there are baths. There are, are wonderful places for the archaeologists to really sink their teeth into and learn about the, uh, the Hellenistic city of that day. Now, this is the city of Denizli, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, and for anybody who knows how to speak Arabic, my apologies for my butchering that word. But this city, which you can see is a sprawling valley city, sits outside of the old city. Unlike uh, Philadelphia, it was not built on top of. Rather, it was skirted to the side. We'll talk a little bit about that in just a second. We're still in the westernmost part of Asia Minor, and as we come up in, this is the far westernmost point. And what you'll notice differently about Laodicea is not only is it a trade center from east to west along the roads going from the, uh, the eastern end of, of Asia, this is actually would become part of the Silk Road. They have discovered evidence of Laodicean trade uh, close to the Sea of China along the Yellow River. So this was a city with a powerful mercantile influence, but it also had, it wasn't just east to west, it was also north to south. So there was a great deal of riches that flowed through this city. Laodicea, the the word itself means the justice of the people, meaning that the people delivered the justice. And just like the judges of Israel, that means that they are not just the people who sit in front of a court, they are in fact the rulers of this city. So that makes you think democracy, right? This is a city where the people rule, or at least that was the branding. It was originally called Diospolis, translation, the city of Zeus, later renamed Roaz. Uh, The site was renamed the third time into Laodicea for Laodicea, who was the wife of the king of, of Phrygia, Antiochus II. This is the king uh, who actually he he ends up divorcing her just a little bit later after the city was rebuilt and renamed, ironically. But um, this was also the king who, when he dies, if memory serves, wills away this section of the kingdom to the Roman Republic before it becomes the empire. The city was built uh, between 261 and 253 on the ruins of the previous two cities, which were originally constructed about 2,000 years before Christ. They were built, it was built near the Ricus, which was considered, at least at the time where it became Laodicea, this river was considered too polluted because it was coming downstream from other cities and too unreliable to be used as a water supply. One of the tributaries that flows into it dries up during the summer months. So not only is it a dirty uh, a sewage-filled river, but you can also not rely on it to be ever tall enough to, to flow, to flush the uh, filth away. So under the Roman, uh, under Roman occupation, the city became the midpoint between a three-city aqueduct system that was fed from the hot mineral springs of Hierapolis which we saw on the map, that was Heriopolis, Laodicea in the middle, and then Colossae, where the book of the Colossians was written to, further downstream. So Heriopolis was the center where you had this this, uh, mineral hot spring coming out. And what they would do is they laid these um, hewn stone pipes from the hot spring using the pressure from them to flow into first Laodicea, where it would come out, it's still mineral-rich at this point, still full of calcium, and not that we in St. Albans have have any uh, experience with having too much calcium in our water, but moving on. And it would go on from there to Colossae, where it would eventually cool down. But the problem with it in Laodicea, it had to be vented off and allowed to cool down because at this point the water came to the city lukewarm. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. The city was popular as a center of commerce. It was a city of merchants, bankers, gold refiners, and it was really well known for a variety of sheep that they bred specifically in this region that produced a glossy, very soft, almost felt soft already, black wool. And that comes into Jesus' message about them in just a moment too. One of the things that we can gather about the riches of it is that the Roman orator Cicero actually did his banking there. In fact, he also held his own private audiences there. And again, there is evidence, archaeological evidence of trade from this city reaching as far as Punjab by the China Sea. There was a school of medicine there attributed to um, Asclepius. Again, this is very much still a Greek culture center that produced an eye salve from different herbs and materials in the region. It became known as Phrygian powder that they would mix in with different types of oils and fat to produce this eye salve that had an international reputation for bringing comfort and healing to people who had irritated, infected, uh, painful eyesores, which again, you can tell Jesus is springing off of this when he writes his letter. It, like the rest of the cities that we've covered up to this point, it was destroyed by a massive earthquake in 62 AD. But unlike the others that accepted help, financial help and engineering help from Rome, this city was so wealthy that it outright refuses assistance. We'll do it by ourselves. We'll rebuild on our own. And it was a source of great pride for them that they were self-sufficient and needed nothing from the rest of the empire. I've already covered its culture there. Another thing that I want to cover here, this was the home of a very large post-Babylonian Jewish population. Several thousands of Jews that traveled here after that, that particular diaspora had ended. Something unique about this city, unlike the other ones, you saw that one picture where it's uh, the city starts out at the foot of a mountain and then spreads out in that valley system. So this is not a very defensible city. It doesn't really have any natural defenses unlike the others that were built on top of mountains. That if you were invading, for instance, if you were invading um, Sardis, when you looked at it, Again, there's a whole other story there that we covered. But when you looked at it, it looked impenetrable because there are all of these cliffs that you would have to scale up to get to the city, which every army eventually did, but that's another story. But this one ha- didn't even have the appearance of defensibility. So when it was, after it was built by the Ionians, it was claimed by the Hittite Empire. A century later, it was captured by the Phrygian kingdom a 1,000 years after that, it was then conquered by the Lydians, uh, by the Syrians in 250 BC, claimed by the kingdom of Pergamos in 190 BC, and finally willed to the Roman Republic shortly thereafter. So there was this culture of pacificity that was built into this town. If you came knocking with an army, they would just outright surrender They wouldn't even try to put up a defense because they knew their own history. It is better to go ahead and raise the white flag than suffer the damage that could be inflicted by an an onslaught army. A little bit about the church. This church was believed to have been founded by Epaphras, one of the uh, students of Paul. It was also instructed several times by Paul through his epistles. In fact, the book of Colossians, and supposedly there was another epistle written specifically to Laodicea by Paul that has been lost to time. But both churches in Laodicea and Colossae were instructed to trade letters between the two of them. Apparently, they were dealing with the same kind of problems that Paul was trying to address. And one of them was Gnosticism, which was the denial of Christ's two natures, the denial of his humanity and the denial of his divinity, either one or the other, but not both. There's also a critique that he offers to one of the first bishops that can kind of uh, discuss what he might be talking about here, uh, Colossians chapters 2 and 4, but let's continue. All right, go ahead, please, and take out your copy of God's Word, and let's follow along with Christ's epistle dictated by John to this church, starting with verse 14 of chapter 3. to the angel of the church, or the messenger of the church of Laodicea, write, again, remember the title of Christ, the commendation, the concern, the instruction, and the promise to the overcomer. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. That word ruler will come back to, because that's, I believe, a mistranslation. It should be the originator or the firstborn of God's creation. I know your works, your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to, this translation, this is the New International Version. I normally use the Holman Christian Standard Version, H CSB, HCSB. Uh, And my apologies for throwing this one up. This is our standard pew Bible. Um, Because you're neither hot nor cold. What he's basically saying here is that you're worthless. And I'll talk about this more in a second. Not that I wish that you were either saved or unsaved. I've heard that battered around a lot. Or that you're Christians and some of you are cardinal Christians and I'd rather you be one or the other. That's not what he's saying either. If you have hot water, then you can cook with it. If you are in a hot spring, then you can relax in it. In fact, it's been attributed to healing certain conditions. Cold water refreshes. It quenches thirst. Both of them have a use. Both of them have a potential. Lukewarm water is known as an emetic. It is like essence of hippocac, only not nearly as, as immediately effective. It causes someone to what? To throw up. Spit here is a very, or spew in the King James, those are very nice ways of saying what Jesus here is really saying. What Jesus is actually saying is, I will vomit you forth from my mouth. Again, picking up on the the history of the city. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, poor, blind and naked. You think that you're self-sufficient. You think you can work your way into heaven. You think you don't need God, that you don't need Christ, that you don't need help, when nothing could be further from the truth. You are blinded to your own spiritual condition. You are naked and shameful before your God. You are wretched, no beauty within you. This is not a saved individual in any stripe. This, we're not talking about even a carnal Christian here which is a bad way of putting it. This is not a backslidden Christian. This is a non-Christian, non-regenerate, someone who has not, you cannot be a Christian and be fully spiritually blind. You cannot come under the presence of God, be endowed by the Holy Spirit of God, and live in total stone blindness. Nor be poor before God if you were, if you had the righteousness of Christ applied to your account, you cannot be poor. This is a church which is an unregenerate church. This is a church without Christ. And we'll see that in just a second verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. So he's touching them where they live. They're bankers, and he's saying that their gold has no value because it's worldly. The clothes that they wear is out of this fine black wool, but black is emblematic in the scriptures of what? Sin. Cover your shameful nakedness salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Your medicine isn't effective. Only Christ is. The first thing that we have to realize before we can become a regenerate Christian is our need for a Savior. Verse 19, Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. And therein, I think, is the the big key with understanding this particular church, trying to accept Christ as Savior without also accepting him as Lord, trying to um, embrace the religion but not the spirit. You have to repent to be a Christian. Here I am, This one verse is probably the saddest verse in all of Scripture, the most condemning rebuke of any church. Because I want you to notice, this, this has been misquoted several times, misapplied in several sermons. This is a letter to a church, not to an individual person's heart. I stand at the door and... The door of what? The door of the church. Christ is not in His own church. The Lord is not present within the congregation that bears His name. Laodicea, the people rule. Who is supposed to rule the church? By definition, Christ, the Son of God, exactly. If anyone, any single individual hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What I I am taking from this is that if even one of them in there, if even one of them is part of this community that calls itself a church, becomes a regenerate Christian, becomes endowed by the Holy Spirit, Then that person, like, like, I hate to use the phrase virus because the exact opposite is true. But having a Christian within that church, the Christians would then multiply. If one solid believer can come to a place that claims believership but doesn't have it and can bring honest discipleship to them, Then a Christian fellowship may yet happen. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the title that Christ chooses for himself, he chooses the word Amen. And oftentimes we think that is some kind of a button to put the end or the closing on a prayer. It's, we, we almost treat it like a magic word that asks God to do something. When in fact, when Jesus says, if two or more are you, two or more are you gather in my name and are in agreement about anything, uh, it will be given to them. What he's saying there basically, the word amen can have three basic meanings depending upon the context. It means truth. It means, so be it, which is the actual meaning behind an individual's prayer. So let it be. But if we all say it together, if there's a community-wide amen, if we're gathered in prayer and we all say it, what we're basically asking is, so say we all. Please let this happen. We bring this petition before God and we all stand in agreement of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So say we all. So, and, and then there are times in worship, and we as Baptists have a, a heritage of this, um, and it is scriptural. When we say something, when there's somebody speaking, or when we're reading from the Word of God, and the Spirit strikes us, uh, the special kind of accord within our soul, and we recognize that as truth, we recognize that as something that's having an impact within our hearts, we say, Amen. Paul does this as well while he's writing Scripture. You can almost see in several places while he's pinning down in his epistles something that strikes a chord between the Holy Spirit breathing the word through him and his soul that he will suddenly, for no apparently decent reason within the context of the letter, he will say, Amen. That is a way that we we announce, that we herald, that we identify as true through the power of the Spirit, the Word of God. So it is a scriptural form of worship going on. I am the faithful and true witness, meaning that Christ himself is the verification of all of God's promises, that he is the witness to all of God's covenants. How? Because he's been there for all of them. In fact, all of them speak about him. The volume of the book is written of me, as recorded in the book of James. And that there is truth the fact that God is living among his people. Jesus himself says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the, the life. So he's asserting both of his natures, his, his humanity that led to his sacrifice, his deity that proclaims the fact that he is incarnate God. He is one of the members of the Godhead. And this is, this, this is a fist in the face of the Gnostic heresy. If you do not have a proper understanding of Jesus, then you don't have a proper understanding of Jesus. You cannot say that you have a close personal intimate relationship with the Lord if you don't know who He really is. If you don't know who He really is or who He really represents, then He is not a personal Savior to you. He is an academic exercise. He wants to be the living Christ, resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father, right now, wants to have a personal, intimate relationship with those who come after him, with us, the originator of all of creation, the firstborn of all living, the firstborn from the dead as we're also told, which means that he has all power and authority that as the firstborn of the Heavenly Father, whom is also our Heavenly Father, that he is entitled to the lion's share of the inheritance. He's also entitled to be the priest of the family, which is how, uh, how Paul picks up on in the book of Romans, and so does the book of James, that now we have a heavenly great high priest. He's the head of the household, the head of the family, of all of creation. The concerns. So if I jump from Jesus' titles to the concerns, what isn't there in this letter? No commendation. no commendation. Gold star. There is no commendation, nothing good Jesus has to say about this church. If we look back at Sardis, that's also a church where Jesus has nothing good to say. Two of these churches Jesus has nothing bad to say about, and that's that's, uh, Smyrna, the church under persecution, and Philadelphia, the church on mission. But the church that's all show and no substance, and this church where the people's influences outray his own, Jesus has nothing good to say about. He calls them lukewarm. And again, cold water refreshes. Hot water helps to provide relief, and it can also provide nutrition. You cook in hot water. An emetic, lukewarm water, causes someone to throw up. Effectively, what he's saying here is that you are useless to the body of Christ. You are robbing the church, the capital C Church, by the fact that your church exists in the current state that it does, you are making the entire body of the community of believers unhealthy. You are robbing it of strength. And therefore, I will vomit you out unless you repent. Now, Leave 2 Timothy 3.5 for you to take a look at later on. Let's let's continue. This church believes that they are rich, but they are spiritually destitute, that he calls out. They have nothing waiting for them in heaven. They are bankrupt before God. In fact, they are in debt, sin, debt. They believe in their own self-sufficiency, which means they are a church filled with pride, a want for self, have it our way. They have more emphasis in their lives on the things of temporal value, on physical gold, on their fancy clothes, on the way that they appear before everybody else, they ha- uh, on their influence, on their power. They have more concern about the physical than they do the temporal. They care more about the here and now than they do their own eternity. They have no spiritual life because they do not have spirit. It's conjecturable, but I think because of the way that Jesus identifies himself, we can, uh, and from the book of Colossians, that we can pretty much gather that they deny the deity and the personhood of Christ. They deny or outright ignore thus the word of God. The word of God is inconvenient. It really is. We want to allow all this stuff from the outside in. We don't want to be different from everybody else because that puts pressure on us. We don't want to do things a certain way that makes us that peculiar people, that kingdom of priests, that royal priesthood. But that's exactly what we're commanded to do because if we cease to do that, we'll cease to make an impact. If we cease to be the person of God and we skim over or read against, not read in, the word of God, then all that we're going to end up accomplishing is our own spiritual destitution, our own apostasism. You're naked before God in that you are shameful and you don't even know it. You are wretched in that you're toiling, but you're toiling uselessly. Jesus said, I know your works, so that you can interpret from that very statement that they're working in something But is a person who does not have the Holy Spirit of God within them, is an apostate person, is someone without a sense of repentance, if they do a work for the church, is that work going to be received by God? No. You're wretched in that you're toiling, but you're toiling uselessly. You're pitiful, meaning that God himself looks down upon you. So buy gold that has been refined. Isaiah 55, if I've, uh, could, you, could you flip back? I'm sorry, I thought that I included that reference. Thank you. Buy gold that has been refined by Christ. Not your own. Working yourself into heaven cannot happen. We are wholly reliant on him for everything, including our salvation including the method and the means by which we conduct ministry. We cannot do anything without his blessing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And when we talk about gold being refined, when we talk about the sacrifice of praise, as as Jesus himself puts it, as, as Paul later goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 3, when we present our sacrifices from this life before God, they will be judged by fire. The dross will be consumed. But whatever is left over, the things that were of value, the things that were originated by God but acted out through us, the times that we have been obedient, the times that we have been wholly reliant upon him, that is what will remain and that is what will be accepted. But right now this church is only giving him dross, wood, hay, stubble, toiling uselessly. White raiment, unlike the black wool that they're wearing right now, white raiment means that Jesus himself is giving them this white raiment, meaning that his righteousness, his innocence, his sinlessness can be applied to their account if they only repent and believe. He will offer them spiritual sight not, not by salve made with human hands but with the power of the Holy Spirit that they, the, the text would suggest that they currently do not have. And if anyone but opens the door when he knocks, he will embrace them and accept them into fellowship into communion and into an intimate relationship with the Savior. So the promise of the overcomer and I want to take a look at what it means to be an overcomer for just a second. I don't think that I've done that yet. 1 John chapter 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. There is a hermeneutic $40 word rule called the rule of expositional constancy. Let me explain what that means. Don't change that channel just yet. Expositional competency uh, um, means that when somebody mentions something, an idiom, an idea, a color, a, a material, a, a type of person, or a symbol somewhere in the Bible, it carries that meaning throughout all of Scripture. So when we see an overcomer here, we see in that a person who overcomes, a person who is victorious, that victory is reliant on faith. Everyone born of God, everyone who is a regenerate Christian, for by grace are you saved through faith. For everyone born of God, everyone who has that born-again redeeming faith, who is reliant upon him, overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is what? Son of God, who is it that overcomes? How is it that someone in Ephesus overcomes the problem that they're having right there? How is it that someone in Sardis becomes an overcomer? Reliance on God. Total reliance on Him. The only way that we can get through the challenges that we face by now, right now is if the Holy Spirit grants us the strength and we are willing to undertake whatever is necessary. Hold on fast to what you've been given. Hold on to your faith. He gives the right to sit on his throne. And we've, come, we, we've had this particular blessing come up before in someone else who will rule the nations. Christ was offered a throne. He was promised, rather, a throne from the voice of the angel Gabriel To his mother Mary, before his birth, he will inherit the throne of his father, David. David's throne is not in heaven. David's throne is not a spiritual throne. David's throne is a political throne. It is an earthly throne. It is a throne found here that has not been in use since uh, since the Babylonian conquest. It is a throne, nevertheless, that Jesus himself is entitled to at Jerusalem, at the, at, the, at the culmination of all things, prophet, priest, and king. So what he's basically saying is, as he's alluding to in the previous verses, who overcomes will give, be given authority over the nations. When Christ's kingdom comes, when his empire is set around this world, the person that overcomes, the overcomer, will be given a, 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 a political authority under his, as a regent under his command, a place of honor in the family business. And here's probably the most difficult thing for me to preach on from the point of view of this particular church. Because if the prophetic insight holds, this is where we are barreling towards right now, the capital C Church. Laodicea was a church where the preferences of people became more important than the Lordship of God. Laodicea was a place where the divinity of Christ was not only questioned but denied, where the Word of God was not taken at face value but instead we can interpret was dismissed, especially if you Take a look at the book of Colossians and mix that in with this. Not only that, but they stand in denial of the judgment of God. That they are, as a church, accountable to someone. Does this sound familiar? Where that which is earthly is more important than that which is eternal. You think that you are rich. You are rich. You think that you have all these things that you're self-sufficient. God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to not be ill. The name it and blame it, uh, name it and claim it, uh, blab it and grab it, whatever it is. That's apparently still in scripture in this passage. But you see what God says, what Christ says about that kind of church, that it is not a church where you sacrifice the will of God for personal comfort, there is the least of real spirituality. When I am more important than the God that I claim to serve, there is the least of real Christianity. Christianity requires very little to become a regenerate member of the body. But what it requires is strange from a worldly point of view. I've jokingly said before that the church is the only place, at least that I can think of, that's an organization where the first rule of being a member is that you have to admit that you don't deserve to be there in the first place. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. first thing you have to do is confess that you're in need of a savior because all of us are we cannot there's none righteous, no not one, which means all of us have to come to repentance. For it's the will of the Father that none should perish but all should come to a saving through repentance through Christ Jesus. For unless you repent ye shall all likewise, Perish. First step, confess. Admit. And that's hard to do. The second step is to accept. For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to do what? To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He cannot be Savior only. He cannot be Savior only. He has to be Savior and Lord. His sacrifice was made so that we could be forgiven, so that the black clothes that we were wearing could be replaced by white clothes of innocence, so that when he sees us, he doesn't see the sin nature, he doesn't see the sins, plural, that we have committed, what he sees is the innocence that Christ has given to us through his sacrifice, paying the price for our sin, washing us white as snow. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, trading places with our Savior, just as he took our place. For next session, next session again. What we're going to try to do is put together a synopsis of these seven churches. We're going to study the church itself. What does Jesus have to say about the church? And what I'd ask you to do, just as a, as an exercise, while we're getting ready for next Wednesday night, is review the seven churches. Again, it's just two chapters, and they're. Pretty quickly. Review your notes that you took with this. And again, if you don't have them printed out, they're at uh, highlonbaptistchurch.org, where you can find all other uh, information about who we are. But what would Jesus write to us? And no matter what local church that you go to, this is an exercise I want you to conduct with your groups. Think about if Jesus was to write, and we'll use us as an example, if Jesus in this kind of format, were to come before John and say, write unto the, the angel of the church of Hylon. Given your experience with what you've heard with these other seven churches, what would he have to say? Is there anything of Philadelphia in our own church? And to what degree? Is there anything of Sardis within our church? And to what degree? Is there anything of Ephesus here? What is the remedy that he would recommend based on that? How would he voice his concerns? And as usual, journal about the way that you come up with. Again, don't don't say "thus saith the Lord," but just as an exercise, like put the name of your church. Put in our case, Hylon. What would he say good about us? What would he say that we have to work on based on? the other seven churches that he mentions in the book of Revelation. And get on the horn with your group or meet together over a meal and talk about it and pray about it. And with that, is there anything else before we dismiss? If not, let's bow our hearts again. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for being a God who does correct those that you love, who has seen fit to offer us not just this, this taste of what it should be like to be part of your kingdom, but what you expect of us as the local fellowship. And Lord, help us to always be the church of the open doors. To be the church where you are our ruler, where we come to you, and where we lay down what separates us from you, so that you can give to us what would unite us with you. Go with us now. Help us to be the people that you have saved us to be, that you create us to be, to ever draw closer to each other as our brothers and sisters. To recognize that this church is not just an organization, that it is not just a gathering of people, it's not a club, but it is a family. One that you founded, one that you protect, one that you gave your life to create. Journey with us now through the course of the week and bring us back again at the next appointed hour. And may it always be said that your word was a blessing to us. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from High Lawn Baptist Church. If you'd like to learn more about High Lawn Baptist Church or donate to our ongoing ministry, you can do so online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We believe that when you love God, you share His Word, and when you love others, you spread the Gospel. We hope you enjoyed today's message and pray that you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.